God's good word to us, but it's a sad and a strange one, this passage. It tells of the saddest day in history, perhaps second to only one other. And yet the more that I've wrestled with this passage this week, the more I'm convinced that it speaks profoundly to us today. And so it is, it is good for us to hear it. We've been spending the first few weeks of the year settling into the first few chapters of the Bible and how the story of the Bible explains our beginnings, our origins, who we are. You know, if you've ever been to the zoo or a theme park or even a big shopping mall, anyone still go to malls? Is that a thing? People still go there? And when you first go into the mall or the zoo or a hiking trail, uh, there's usually a big display somewhere with a large-scale map on the display. And most sensible people will usually stop at the map and they start looking for one thing on the map. What is it? The bathrooms. No. Um, yeah, the star, right? You know, that you are here on the map. Genesis 1 through 3 is like a big you are here star on the map. It tells us where we're starting from as humans as we make our way through this strange and wonderful, awful, complicated journey called life. As we saw in earlier weeks, the Genesis story tells us that we inhabit a world that was born in beauty and song, custom made out of the love of the triune God for us. So all of our aching and longing for joy and wonder, for friendship and love, for meaningful work and significant lives, these are not psychological illusions or mere evolutionary byproducts. They are deeply rooted in reality, in how we were made. And the Christian story accounts for these experiences and longings in a way that I think no other story can or does. But that is only looking at one part of life, isn't it? The awfully positive part of life. What do we make of the evil that we experience in the world? Life is not all beauty and wonder and love. Life is frustration and monotony, betrayal, pain, death. How does the Christian story account for both of these realities, the good and wonderful and the terrible and the ugly? Well, Genesis chapter 3. There's more to come, but our passage today is going to tell us about an enemy, a lie, and a test. An enemy, a lie, and a test. And these three things will explain, again, in a way that I think no other belief system can or does, why the world is the way that it is. So, first, the enemy. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Okay, story begins. What the heck? Uh, this is weird. Everything's going fine and dandy in the garden. We ended the previous chapter on a rather high note with the creation of Eve and the man and his wife. They were naked and unashamed. Chapter 2 ends. All right, groovy. That is cool. Uh, but now here comes a creature who's said to be crafty. And there's actually some Hebrew wordplay here between the serpent being crafty and the man and the woman being naked. The words are very similar. The closest English counterpart that we might have would be something like, the man and his wife were nude, 
But along comes a serpent who is very shrewd. Why does this matter? Why the wordplay? Well, it contrasts the innocent and peaceful nature of the humans with the wily nature of the serpent. It's a stark contrast. But who is this character? And where did he come from? How did he get in the garden? And why is he talking? And perhaps most curiously, does he have a lisp? (laughs) He is a snake after all. But, you know, have you ever watched a movie with someone, perhaps those you love dearly, and as soon as an unexplained character or some befuddling plot twist is introduced, the questions just start flowing. Okay, wait, who is that? And what just happened? Is that important? How does she know who his real mother is? You know, because they're trying to keep up with the story and they don't have all the information. But you, seasoned movie critic that you are, know that more information is coming later. And at this point, it's best to settle in and let the story play out. You'll find out. Just keep watching, right? The director knows what they're doing in creating suspense and mystery. So it is with the serpent. At this point in the story, all you really know is that it's something created by God, but it is wily, dangerous, and will soon begin trying to turn the humans away from God. So we can at least take away from this text that there is an evil being beyond our full understanding whose presence in the world we ought to take seriously. Or are we to think that the source of all suffering and evil in the world is merely a byproduct of human invention and cruelty? C.S. Lewis discovered this as he began reading the New Testament. In Mere Christianity, he says, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talked so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death, disease, and sin. Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God and was good when He was created and went wrong, and this universe is at war. I know someone will ask me, do you really mean at this time of day to reintroduce our old friend the devil, hoofs and horns and all? Well, what the time of day has to do with it, I do not know, and I am not particular about the hoofs and horns, but in other respects, my answer is, yes, I do. As, as modern, scientifically aged people, it's, it's hard for us to really reckon with the idea that there's a world and a war going on outside of our observable, testable realities. It's hard for us to swallow. But, you know, the history of the world, and even perhaps the world today, if you were to take a poll of all people who live even today, we would be in the minority belief on that. And we discard or downplay the spiritual realm to our own peril. Author John Eldridge says this in his book uh, called Epic. It's an epic quote, if you will. He said, I'm staggered by the level of naivety that most people live with regarding evil. They don't take it seriously. They don't live as if though the story has a villain, not the devil prancing around in red tights, carrying a pitchfork, but the incarnation of the very worst of every enemy you've met in every other story. Dear God, the Holocaust, child prostitution, terrorist bombings, genocidal governments, what is it going to take for us to take evil seriously? Life is very confusing if you do not take into account that there is a villain. Every story has a villain, because yours does. 
do you take the existence of this villain into account? Genesis embodies him as a serpent. The New Testament will liken him to a lion prowling to devour people's lives. His temptation to sin and selfishness, lust and greed, anger and pride, these are not dandelions in the garden of life. These are lions. This is the venom in the serpent's fangs. They should be taken seriously. I remember one time as a kid, I went to pick uh, some grapes with my little brother in a grapevine that was in our backyard. And as we were doing this, out of the corner of my eye, I saw the pattern of a rattlesnake up in the vine, right where my little brother was reaching for grapes. And so I, like, I took off, I jumped lightning fast over to him, pulled him away, basically so hard that I knocked him to the ground and told him to get away, you know, get away from, from the snake. And he looks up at me like, what is your problem? And I'm like, you're welcome. I just saved your life. There's a rattlesnake in there. To which he said, yeah, we put a fake blow-up snake in there to keep birds off the grapes, you dummy. <laughs> to which I said, yeah, well, we're getting rid of it. And I threw it away. But my point is just this. If you believe there is a rattlesnake in your grapevine, you act a little different. You take some precautions. If you say you believe there's a devil who seeks to devour, do you coddle with his fangs of temptation? Or do you regularly pray how our Lord taught us to pray? This day, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Or what if you see your brother or your sister reaching toward a place of sin and temptation? If there really is a snake on the vine, will you do the hard thing of stepping in to try to pull them away? Every story has a villain. And ours is no exception. But what does the villain say? Commentator Alan Ross points out that the story is much more interested in what the serpent says than who he is or where he came from. So let's look at the lie. That's the enemy. Here's the lie. The end of verse 1 and then on to 2. And the woman said to the serpent, or I'm sorry, let me read the rest of verse 1 to you. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the serpent speaks to the woman. He leads with a clearly false statement, perhaps meant to draw Eve into the conversation. I feel like she needs to defend God. But he definitely seems intent on impugning God's motives right out of the gate. He said, did did God actually say that you guys can't eat from any tree in the garden? Whoa. I mean, do you hear the thrust of his question? What's he really saying? What's he implying? What a Scrooge that God is. I can't believe he wouldn't let you partake of these beautiful trees. He is such a miser. Now, at this point, it's good to look back at what God did say in chapter 2. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. His command leads with his 
generosity and freedom. What God tells the man is, as much as you like to eat, it is a full course buffet. Come back as many times as you like. Eat to your heart's content. But there is only one prohibition of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. One prohibition, and it is serious, deathly serious. But the serpent craftily ignores the generosity of God's command, and he distorts it to the point of saying, God's not really letting you have much of anything around here, is he? And you know, this lie echoes through our own hearts today when we focus on the few things that God has not allowed us to have or not permitted us to do while ignoring the countless blessings that He has kindly given us. This is one of the reasons that daily thankfulness, a practice of daily thankfulness, even for small things, is an act of resistance against the serpent's lie. So the woman successfully baited response to the serpent and says, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, he likely knows that the woman would correct his false accusation by correcting his statement and bringing up the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent's ready to counter. He says to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, with the smear campaign, God is holding back something from you. He's not protecting you. He's protecting himself. God knows what's up here, and he's withholding a good thing from you that's within your reach. Take it. So to understand what's going on here, you've got to feel the pull of what the serpent is offering them. Why is this tree so enticing? What does it mean to have the knowledge of good and evil? So admittedly, there's there's different interpretations and understandings of exactly what this tree represents. So I'm going to speak as a fellow student of the text here. You can always go study your Bibles and come to your own conclusions, which I would encourage you to do, but try to follow me here for just a second. The tree seems to be about more than just knowing essential moral information, like stealing, bad, sharing, good, or even having a basic sense of moral capacity. I mean, don't Adam and Eve already have at least some sense of right and wrong? Otherwise, why the command to not eat from the tree? Why would God or how would He hold them accountable for something they couldn't even comprehend? This phrase, knowing good and evil, is used elsewhere in the Old Testament, both for the ability to make moral judgments in an accurate way, like little children are said to not yet have the knowledge of good and evil in Deuteronomy chapter 1, but also the ability to make judgments about what's good and bad, right and wrong, helpful and unhelpful in an authoritative way, like a king would do for a nation. We see this with uh, King David and King Solomon, for example. A woman comes to King David in 2 Samuel 14, and she says, For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. She's bringing her case to David. And your servant thought, "Ah, the, The word of the Lord my king will set me at rest. For my Lord the king is like the angel of God to discern 
good and evil. He's able to make this judgment in this case and do what's right. King Solomon, when he becomes the king of Israel at a very young age, he prays this famous prayer. He says, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? So you see this discerning good and evil, knowing good and evil, adjudicating good and evil. This was the work of the king for the benefit of his people. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I think, primarily represents not just moral maturity, but moral authority, moral autonomy. To eat or not eat of the tree, then, offered humans a choice. The choice to trust God, to be the one who defines what's good and right and whole and true, or evil, bad, unhelpful and unwholesome, or to take that authoritative kingly wisdom into their own hands without reference for God. You see, the temptation is that we can be free from you to make our own decisions about what is best apart from you and from your guidance. Thank you very much. So you see, the tree represents a trade for them, innocence for independence, humility for autonomy, love for God, for love of self. I don't think the fruit on this tree was so much magical as it was sacramental. You know, we think of a physical object with a spiritually significant meaning, like baptism, like communion. These are physical acts, physical objects that don't contain any magic in and of themselves, but they have spiritually significant meaning. So are you with me? What did the tree represent? Adam and Eve's choice between humbly submitting to God's wisdom and will, or by eating the fruit they would literally take in and upon themselves the terrible burden of being like God, the arbiters of good and evil. Perhaps the best way of capturing the allure and doubt induced by the serpent comes from a singer-songwriter named Caroline Cobb. No relation that I'm aware of, but maybe I'll find out one day. She writes this, did he really say it? Why is he keeping you down? Don't you want to taste it? Freedom without him around. Don't you want to know? Don't you want to choose? You want it, don't you? Don't you? Now do you feel the pull of what the serpent is offering? It's a lie, but a powerful one. Freedom without him around. I can know, I can choose, I can find my own way. I can be like God and have his wisdom and his blessings without him. Without him always watching, always hovering over my shoulder. The serpent's words have echoed through the ages in our stories, in our songs, in our hearts, right down to the present day. We come into the world, unlike Adam and Eve, already poisoned with the venom of doubt. And so we ask, what is God like? Is He holding something back from me by His commands? Wouldn't I have more fun in life without Him always meddling in my business? Do I really need God? Is He really most interested in my good? 
is he actually good? You know, I do wonder if Genesis was made into a movie in our day and age, I dare say that the man and the woman's choice would likely be portrayed as heroic and the serpent as a conscientious whistleblower. Have you ever seen the movie uh, The Truman Show Jim Carrey? It's a thought-provoking 90s movie. I like to reference 90s movies because if you haven't seen it by now, you can't blame me for the spoilers. So in this movie, Jim Carrey's character, Truman, he's born and raised in an elaborate movie production set, complete with paid actors and actresses to keep up the ruse that his world is real. But it's actually a 24-7 reality TV show, and it's all directed by a man named Kristoff, interestingly. But Truman comes to slowly suspect that his world is rigged, and he eventually sails across a fake ocean, overcoming all sorts of hurdles put in the way by the Creator to escape his bondage of a false reality. And in the final scene of the movie, the creature-creator parallels are really hard to miss. Kristoff speaks from a loudspeaker up in the sky. There's a fake sun and fake clouds, and you hear his voice booming through the, through the scene. And he tries to convince Truman to stay in the show. But, and here's the spoiler, Truman chooses to step out into the unknown, to open the exit door and leave the security of his creator's benevolent but ultimately contrived world and strike out on his own. And the millions of people, you know, they watch this show all the time, 24-7. They cheer him on as he finally leaves the show. And if you see the movie, you kind of want to as well. Because you see, for us, autonomy and independence to chart our own course in life are of ultimate value. To be the true man, no matter what it costs. You see, we're truly Adam and Eve's children. This is the lie. Strike out on your own. You don't need God. He's not all that good. Seems nice enough, but he's a manipulative director, pulling the strings from behind the scenes, holding us back from making our own choices about life. Is this what he's like? I'll try to answer this more fully in just a moment, but for now, it is worth noticing that the Genesis story, in contrast to the Truman Show, God does show them the exit door right from the start. There's no pretense. If they would like to be the arbiters of good and evil and leave his garden, here's the tree. But there are consequences to this choice. So let's talk about it. The test. Let's talk about the test. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. It's as if Eve never really considered, never seen the tree in this light before. And it seemed good, delightful, desirable. And she was deceived. She was tricked. She fell for it. And her desires in that moment turned from wanting God to wanting what the fruit would give her apart from Him. And Adam fares no better in the story, perhaps worse, for in his silence, he was standing there calculating. We learn later in Scripture that he was not tricked. 
He knew what was at stake. He knew full well what he was doing, and he did it anyway. And in eating, he too despised the love of God for the love of himself. They failed the test. You know, I wish I had the words to express the gravity and sorrow of this moment in our history. So much was on the line here. Did the sky turn black? Was it it only their hearts? Hearts that had known only warmth and happiness now erupted with shame, anger, regret, and sadness. Did the man and the woman scream at each other in rage? Or did they only seethe in silence? Words that were once sweetly exchanged in song would now be crassly muttered under their breaths. Yes, their eyes were opened. Yes, they knew more. But what they found on the other side of striking out on their own and taking good and evil into their own hands was not what they expected. What's the first thing that they now know? Your eyes will be open and you will know. The first thing they know is their own nakedness. They're exposed, vulnerable, frail, still creatures, not the gods and kings they thought they would be. And their independence is not all it was cracked up to be. And sadly, it seems that we keep on making the same discovery. Uh, Chuck Colson and Nancy Piercy point out that modern society is perhaps just starting to realize the same thing as Adam and Eve. They write, all the ideologies and all the utopian promises that have marked this century have proven utterly bankrupt. Americans have achieved what modernism presented as life's great shining purpose, individual autonomy, the right to do what one chooses. Yet this has not produced the promised freedom. Instead, it has led to the loss of community and civility, to kids shooting kids in schoolyards, to citizens huddling in gated communities for protection. We discover that we cannot live with the chaos that inevitably results from choice divorced from morality, true morality, trying to hold out onto good and evil without reference to God, leaves us societally and personally, in a word, naked. So we are all in Adam. We enter this world not in bliss, but in agony, kicking and screaming. Our default mode is independence from God, continuing the stiff arm that Adam and Eve extended long ago. We happily ratify on almost a daily basis the choice that they made to be our own masters. And we naturally distrust God's goodness and God's good instructions. But... Where Adam and Eve failed, where you and I have failed, God has not. Because thousands of years later, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would be tested over and over. First, not in paradise, but in the wilderness. Starving and parched with thirst, he would reject the tempter's lies, not once, but three times. And in his own garden of testing, looking ahead to when he would surely die, he would say to the Father, not once but three times, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
Jesus did the exact opposite of what Adam and Eve said and did and the exact opposite of what you and I have said and done. In the face of overwhelming pressure and temptation, we've all said to God in one way or another, my will be done. But in the face of overwhelming pressure and temptation, Jesus said to the Father, thy will be done. Where Adam and Eve and you and I have spurned the Father, Jesus submitted to him. As Philippians chapter 2 says, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, being like God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form not of a serpent, but a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so every ounce of the weight of evil that Adam and Eve brought crashing down onto our world would be laid upon his shoulders. He said what we would not say. He did what we could not do, and ultimately, he went to a cross of death so that it might become for us a tree of life. All you who pass by, behold and see, man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree. The tree of life to all, but only me. Was ever grief like mine? And so Jesus would offer us his own body, his own blood. He would tell his disciples, Take and eat, not as words of temptation, but of salvation. So for all who cling to him and his tree of life, he would bear our failures and offer his obedience in our place. My friends, this is how you can know. Listen, this, this is how you can know that God is not holding anything back from you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, Jesus on the cross is the final answer to the lie of the serpent that God is holding out on you. Does he have your best interest at heart? See how far he's willing to go for you. Is he holding anything back from you? See how much he would give for you. What else must he do to earn your trust and enable your obedience? So we're going to end our time here together by looking at Jesus. To see him in his garden of testing and to see him offering perfect obedience to the Father where we have not. Perhaps this week, even this week, you have failed God and you're very mindful of your failures. You've gone beyond the loving boundaries that he's set for you and you have embraced sin. And use this time together to confess and receive the costly but free and glad forgiveness of Jesus. Maybe you walked in here today living with doubt about God's goodness to you. Use this time to renew and express your trust in him again 
as you see him give his only son for you. Or maybe today you're just unsure with whether or not you should entrust your life to God's care. Use this time to consider the character of the God who's calling you to trust him. So let's watch and pray and fall in love with Jesus Christ all over again today. Let's pray. So, Lord, Lord, this is your good word for us. Where we have failed the test, all of us, you have given your son for us. He has obeyed where we have disobeyed. He has trusted you where we have not trusted you. And in giving him for us, Lord, we see once again that there is nothing, nothing good that you will withhold from us. We can trust you when you tell us things that are hard for us to hear, when you give us commands that we do not like, we see once again that your heart is for us. Give us the mercy to step into this week trusting you because we see how far you're willing to go for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen.